Introductory material of The Worm Ouroboros. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jason Mills. The Worm Ouroboros by E. R. Edison. Introductory material. This file contains the dedication, an epigram in the form of a version of the Ballad of Thomas the Rhymer, and an introduction by James Stevens. Dedication To W. G. E. and to my friends K. H. and G. C. L. M. I dedicate this book. It is neither allegory nor fable, but a story to be read for its own sake. E. R. E. 9th January 1922 Through Thomas lay on Huntley Bank, A fairly he spied wi' his ee, And there he saw a lady bright Come riding down by the Eildon tree. Her skirt was o' the grass-green silk, Her mantle o' the velvet fine, At ilka tet of her horse's mane Hung fifty siller bells and nine. True Thomas he pulled off his cap, and louted low down on his knee. Hail to thee, Mary, Queen of Heaven, for thy peer on earth could never be. Oh no, oh no, Thomas, she says, that name does not belong to me. I am but the Queen of fair Elfland, that am hither come to visit thee. Harp and carp, Thomas, she says, harp and carp alangui me, and if ye dare to kiss my lips, Sure of your body I will be. Betide me weal, betide me woe, That weird shall never daunt on me. Sinheas kissed her rosy lips, All underneath the Eildon tree. Thomas the Rhymer Introduction The Worm Ouroboros, No Worm But the Serpent Itself, Is a wonderful book. As a story, or as prose, it is wonderful, and there being a cause for every effect, the reason for writing it should be as marvellous again. Shelley had to write the Prometheus Unbound, he was under compulsion, for a superhuman energy had come upon him, and he was forced to create a matter that would permit him to imagine and think and speak like a god. It was so with Blake, who willed to appear as a man but existed like a mountain, and at their best the work of these poets is inhuman and sacred. It does not greatly matter that they had or had not a message. It does not matter at all that either can be charged with nonsense, or that both have been called madmen. The same charge might be laid against a volcano or a thunderbolt, or this book. It does not matter that they could transcend human endurance and could move tranquilly in realms where lightning is the norm of speed. The work of such poets is sacred, because it outpaces man, and, in a realm of their own, wins even above Shakespeare. An energy such as came on the poets has visited the author of this book, and his dedicatory statement, that it is neither allegory nor fable, but a story to be read for its own sake, puts us off with the assured arrogance of the poet who is too busy creating to have time for schoolmastering. But, waking or in dream, this author has been in strange regions, and has supped at a torrent which only the greatest know of. The story is a long one, 
this reader would have liked it twice as long. The place of action is indicated, casually, as the planet Mercury, and the story tells of the wars between two great kingdoms of that planet, and the final overthrow of one. Mr. Edison is a vast man. He needed a whole cosmos to play in, and created one, and he forged a prose to tell of it that is as gigantic as his tale. In reading this book the reader must a little break his way in, and must surrender prejudices that are not allowed for. He may think that the language is more rotund than is needed for a tale, but as he proceeds he will see that only such a tongue could be spoken by these colossi, and soon he will delight in a prose that is as life-giving as it is magnificent. Mr. Edison's prose never plays him false. It rises and falls with his subject, and is tender, humorous, sour, precipitate, and terrific as the occasion warrants. How nicely the cogger danced for the red foliot. Foxy red above, but with black bellies, round furry faces, innocent amber eyes and great soft paws. On a sudden the music ceased and the dancers were still, and standing side by side, paw in furry paw, they bowed shyly to the company, and the red foliot called them to him, and kissed them on the mouth, and sent them to their seats. Corund leaned on the parapet, and shaded his eyes with his hand, that was broad as a smoked haddock, and covered on the back with yellow hairs growing somewhat sparsely as the hairs on the skin of a young elephant. A dismal tempest suddenly surprised them. For forty days it swept them in hail and sleet over a wide wallowing ocean, without a star, without a course. Night came down on the hills. A great wind moaning out of the hueless west tore the clouds as a ragged garment, revealing the lonely moon that fled naked betwixt them. Dawn came like a lily, saffron-hued, smirked with smoke-grey streaks that slanted from the north. He was naked to the waist, his hair, breast, and arms to the armpits clotted and drop with blood, and in his hands two bloody daggers. Quotations can give some idea of the rhythm of his sentences, but it can give none of the masses' sweep and intensity of his narrative. Milton fell in love with the devil because the dramatic action lay with him, and in this book Mr. Edison trounces his devils for being naughty, the word bad has not significance here, but he trounces the wizard king and his kingdom with affection and delight. What gorgeous monsters are Garice the Twelfth, and Corund and Corinius! The reader will not easily forget them. Nor Garice's great antagonist, Lord Juss, nor the marvellous traitor, Lord Grow, with whom the author was certainly in love, nor the great fights and the terrible fighters, Lords Brandock de Har and Goldry Blusco, and a world of others, and their wives. Nor will he forget the mountain Kostropivraka, that had to be climbed, and was climbed, as dizzying a feat as literature can tell of. So huge he was that even here, at six miles' distance, the eye might not at a glance behold him, but must sweep back and forth as over a broad landscape, from the ponderous roots of the mountain, where they sprang black and sheer from the glacier, up the vast face, where buttress was piled upon buttress, and tower upon tower, in a blinding radiance of ice-hung precipice and snow-filled gully, to the lone heights, where, like spears menacing high heaven, the white teeth of the summit ridge cleft the sky. Mr. Edison's prose does not derive from the English Bible. His mind has more affinities with Celtic imaginings and method, and his work is Celtic, 
in that it is inspired by beauty and daring, rather than by thoughts and moralities. He might be Scotch or Irish, scarcely the former, for while Scotland loves full-mouthed verse, she, like England, is prose-shy. But from whatever heaven Mr. Edison come, he has added a masterpiece to English literature. James Stevens End of Introductory Material <laughs>